If you've ever wondered why your cat keeps doing that thing, you know, that thing I'm talking about, then Online Behavior Day might be the conference for you. Join us for in-depth discussions and FAQs with expert consultants Pam Johnson-Bennett, Tabitha Cusera, and Dr. Rachel Geller, and Arden Moore on Saturday, April 9th. Visit communitycatspodcast.com to learn more and register today. You've tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Jonathan Howe. Jonathan does TNR and manages a small colony in Astoria, Queens. His wife and he got trained, certified, and started doing so during the lockdown, having never had a cat. 18 months later, they have two indoor cats, a colony of outside cats, and have fostered and adopted several other kittens. Well, they're cat people now. This experience, in large part, inspired him to declare his candidacy for Congress in New York's 14th Congressional District. He was inspired by the community support of their project, even in the midst of the most extreme parts of the lockdown in 2020. He was also dismayed by the red tape that made the process so much harder. Jonathan, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me on. Sure thing. Sure thing. So before we get started and finding out more about your experiences, learning about how to be a cat man, can I officially label you a cat man? Tell me, how did you become passionate about cats before? Did it happen before this TNR experience? It happened during the TNR experience. So I have never owned a cat. I am allergic to cats, and I have been my entire life. Uh, I've always been a dog person. If I saw, you know, I would ask people if they had me over, like, oh, do you have a cat? Like, I need to make sure I bring some Benadryl. I need to bring a inhaler. So I was never much of a cat person. I don't think I pet a cat for probably 10 years prior to this. So no, uh, my, my, my passion for cats, which is now unbridled, <laughs> definitely began with the, uh, the TNR process uh, to the point where the tie that I'm wearing now, which has a bunch of uh, pictures of my cats on it, which my wife made, I actually wear to work. Uh, you know, I wear it when I do, uh, I'm a public defender in Bronx County Family Court and we're still appearing virtually. So I, I appear from my home and I put on a, a tie and I try to lighten the mood a little bit because it can be a, a little bit of a downer being in, uh, in family court as a public defender. But no, never had a cat, never had a passion for cats, if anything, the opposite until this all happened. I mean, I, I think you said in, uh, in one of your introductions to another show I listened to, you said that your interest is that you help turn your passion for cats into action, whereas I think I came about it where I just turned my action for cats into a passion. That's great. That's fantastic. So tell me about the discovery that you had of discovering this colony and take me through a little bit of your journey and your discovery and how you ended up getting involved doing TNR. Yeah, well, I'll back up like eight years, very, very briefly. I was at a friend's house in Gowanus, Brooklyn, and we were in his backyard and we were you know, having a few drinks and just hanging out and he had a nice little patio. I hear this horrible sound, you're know, like, this nasty, terrifying sound. And I start looking around and in every bush behind every fence was a starving cat. And they were emaciated, they were angry, they were hissing, they were like approaching towards us and then backing off as we looked at them. 
I was like, what, what is going on? Like, what, why, why are all these cats here? He's like, oh, some of the neighbors feed them, uh, but they don't really do much about it. And so I came back uh, to hang out maybe like a month later, there were half as many cats and they were just as emaciated. And my friend was like, oh, you can't feed them or they'll keep coming and they'll keep reproducing and it's just, just horrible. And I just remember thinking, there has to be a better way than just letting all these cats die uh, and just make more of them just to suffer and live short, horrible lives. Um, and so that kind of stuck with me. Again, I wasn't a cat person at the time, never really interacted with cats in person, um, but that really stuck in my head. Like I, I was, I don't want to say traumatized by it, but that's probably the best word. Um, and then flash forward about eight years and my wife and I moved to Astoria. We're living here. We, we look out the window every now and then we're on the ground floor um, and we saw some cats out back and said, okay, cats live in New York. Uh, but then lockdown happens and we're, we're stuck at home. She has no work to do because her work is shut down. Bronx County Family Court is shut down, so I don't have much to do. We're just kind of watching the cats. You know, it, it, you know, it's a depressing time. Everyone's upset. Everyone's scared. And we're watching the cats. And we're like, oh, let's throw them some food. Let's throw them some food. And then the memory came back. I said, oh, no. We are now that neighbor. We are the neighbor who fed the cats and then didn't do anything about it. I said, okay, well, they're all adult cats. They, they look healthy. They look fine. Nothing I have to do right now. And then maybe like two weeks later, we see the first kitten and we're like, oh, damn. Like, you know, obviously we weren't feeding when this happened, like when they got pregnant, but I said it is, it's our responsibility now, so we have to do something about it. Um, so we, we kept feeding them and we waited until we saw that the, uh, the, the kittens were weaned. There were only two of them. Uh, and that was maybe at this point, late April, May. Um, and I said, well, we have to catch them. Like, we have to bring them in. Like, we have to do something about it. Like, we, we can put them in, like, a box in the living room until we find someone to adopt it. Like, whatever we have to do. We, but we, we can't just let them go out and now have their own litters and just keep going and going and going. Uh, so we bought a cat cage, like, just like one of those, like, blue plastic cages. And we tied a piece of string to the door. And we put the string through the cage. And we put food in the cage. And I sat at the window one night. I just sat there and sat there and sat there. And no one came. And then the next night, I did it again. I said, I pulled the string, got it. So I, I called my wife. She was running out. Grabbed it. She's like, no, it's the mom. It was the mom. We didn't want to catch the mom. We had to catch both the kittens before we could catch the mom. So we let her go. And I'm extremely frustrated. <laughs> extremely, extremely frustrated. Uh, so I got, you know, sit down, have a beer, I take a breath. Okay. Let's try it again. So I rebate the cage, put it back out. Put the string back on, sit there for another three hours, and it is now about 2.30 in the morning. A little shape runs into the cage. I wait until it's all the way in. I pull the string, and that's Clara. That's the, the cat that's now over there. Uh, so we had no idea what to do. So we, we bring this cage inside, and there's a little cat in it, and I don't know what to do with the cat. My wife doesn't know what to do with the cat. And I, I, you know, I had this big idea, like, we're going to save these cats. And I was like, what do we do now? We have it. Like, what do we do with it now? Um, so we didn't know what to do. So we tried to build our own, this is embarrassing now. Uh, we tried to build our own little enclosure for it. And it's like, it's a small cat. How is it gonna jump out? We made it like three feet high out of cardboard boxes taped against the wall. Um, it's embarrassing to talk about now because it's so naive. Uh, and then, so the next day I was like, we can't keep it in the cage. We pretty much dumped her into the little enclosure. And immediately she jumps right out of it into my hands. I grab her. She starts biting me all over, you know, scratching because she's a little kitten. And I'm like, chase her. We get her back into the cage. We're like, okay, what, what do we do now? I had to go to the, uh, I was about to say the vet. I had to go to the doctor, uh, get a tetanus shot. 
And that's when they told me, they're like, you cannot get rid of this cat for 10 days. Because if you let this cat out of your sight in the next 10 days and someone else gets it, we're going to have to kill it and do a rabies test. I was like, this is not a rabid cat. It didn't bite me because it was rabid. Like it bit me because I was dumping it out of a cage into a, into a little enclosure. But okay. So again, we didn't know what to do. We can't just keep it in a little cage. So I call up a friend of mine who, uh, who has had cats before. She's like, oh, I have an outdoor playpen for my cats. I'll drive it up to you. Just put it in the middle of your room, you know, middle of your living room, put the cat in there. So I have a little bit more room. So now we're stuck with this, uh, this cute little kitten for, for 10 days. And in that time we went from, we will foster it and adopt it out to, we love this thing. We're never going to get rid of it and we have to find a way to keep it. Uh, so we did. And during that time we helped our neighbor because at this point we're like, we can't take in the other one because we've, we've already messed this up enough. Uh, but we helped our neighbor on the other side of the alley where the cats live, uh, set up a trap and do the same thing. Uh, that cat is now happy and healthy living in their house. So the, the two kittens now split up and we end up keeping her. Her name's Clara. Uh, she's wonderful. And then we're like, okay, what do we do now? Like there, there's still a cat out there. There's still many cats out there and they're going to keep having babies. So like this is not solving the problem and we can't take like 20 cats. Like this is not indefinite. Uh, so I start looking in like, what do you do? And that's when I found TNR. I think it was a uh, neighborhood cats. I found their, their website and, but they weren't doing any trainings right there because it was you know, still locked down, nothing was going on. But I got the gist of it, and I started reaching out to a local group, um, Astoria Cat Rescue, I mean Astoria Queens. Uh, and they're like, yeah, we can get you a, a, you know, a trap so you can catch them on more easily, but the ASPCA is closed due to lockdown. So there was nowhere we could bring her. And then we look out the window a day or two later, and there she is with her husband, you know, the cat and her husband, making more kittens. And I'm like, oh no, like it's gonna happen again. Uh, eventually, ASPCA opens back up. The story of Cat Rescue Lady calls me uh, to tell me, hey, we can, we can do it now, but now it's been you know, six, seven weeks. And I, you know, we watched this cat conceiving, and we couldn't then bring it to the ASPCA and you know, kill these kittens that we knew were you know, just about ready to come out. So we waited, and we knew it was a gamble. There could have been 20 cats in there for all we know. Um, but she had one more kitten. She had one kitten. That's Art Bell. He's sleeping over there. Uh, so we, we caught him. After he was weaned, brought him in. Same uh, same method. We actually used the, the drawstring method again. Uh, yeah, the cat fishing method we call it. Uh, brought him in, and you know we we're again we we're going to foster him, adopt him out. But Clara and he, you know, they're brother and sister, and they they got along really well. And they were they were wearing each other out. Like we didn't have to run them around anymore. We didn't have to use a toy every single night to avoid the zooms in the middle of the night. Uh, so I thought, okay, actually, this is great. It's actually easier to have two cats. So we kept him. But now again. Same problem. <laughs> we still have all these fertile cats out there. Um, and again, the ASPCA is still largely shut down or in very, very limited service. And I'm complaining about this in some uh, conference I have in court. And someone who's not even part of the court appearance, someone who's a, a clerk in court who doesn't usually talk, she's like, Mr. Howe, give me a call after this. So I give her a call and she's like, we have like, a, like an underground railroad system to get these cats up to Westchester. Like we can we can get them to the Westchester ASPCA, which is open. So we borrow the trap, catch the mom. And I remember we put out this automatic, you know, like the real traps that you all use. We put one of those out. And I remember I walk inside to like sit down and watch and see when she walks in. And before I had gotten back into my apartment, she had walked right into the trap, gotten caught, and we had her. So we got her fixed. Um, and then it was just one after another after another. And we got the we got the mom fixed, we got the dad fixed, we got who we believe to be the uncle fixed. Um, Whole, whole colony now fixed. Uh, there was one newcomer who came, had another one kitten, got that one, fostered it, 
adopted it out. Uh, she's now left, so we don't really know where she is. Um, but we're hoping that we now have our own Kate, our own trap. Uh, so we're hoping if she shows back up again, we can get her fixed as well. Um, but it, it really just went from like zero to 60 in no time. We went from having zero cats to having one to having two to then spending like the entire winter last winter just trapping and you know making uh, reservations at the ASPCA, which as you may know is very difficult. You got to wake up at six in the morning and, and sign up for the slot and you have to be there right at seven, like all, all those different uh, requirements. Did all that, got them all fixed, and now we're here with what, a half dozen outside cats and you know two inside cats and you know, three or four kittens that we've adopted out. Um, it just feels good. But the the way that people responded was incredible. Like we, we would be walking over to our neighbor's place with a with a trap to put out there, and people would stop and be like, "Oh, what are you doing with that? What, what are you doing with that trap?" I was like, "Oh, we're gonna go catch uh, you know the cats and get them fixed." They'll be like, "Oh, how can I help?" Like, can I, can I give you a ride to the ASPCA? You know, can, do you want to borrow my car? Uh, we had people to drop off bags of food in front of our apartment building. Um, even our, our super brought us uh, some little uh, plastic bowls and plates because we had been putting those out there for the, for the cats to eat off of. And he just gave us, you know, like 100 of them. Um, everyone, you know, a, a, anyone who heard about it wanted to help. And this is at the point. Do you happen to know if anyone else was feeding these cats? So we found out that the neighbor who now has one of the kittens uh, had been feeding them for a while. And she actually kind of helped us get the, the lay of the land of like who was in charge and who was running things. There's, there's one cat who uh, very big, very scarred all over. And we realized that he had to be the first male that we caught because he ran everything. You know, he was, in, he was the alpha. Actually, it's a funny story, so I'll tell it. When we brought him to the ASPCA, we came to pick him up that night and they're like, watch out for this cat. Like he's a, he's a menace. I'm like, what? Well, yeah, but like, what do you mean? They're like, well, he woke up during the procedure and attacked the vet and then ran out of the building and people had to chase him and catch him outside of the building uh, and then bring him back in to finish the procedure. And like, that's never happened before. Okay. And they're like, also, we think he's about eight years old, which is crazy. My understanding is crazy for a feral cat, very, very old. And his ears were so scarred up, they couldn't tip him. And so they had to give him like some kind of tattoo. And it kind of made sense to us because when we spoke to the neighbor, she's like, oh, yeah, like our first cat that we have, the one that's hiding under the table over there, she was showing us. Uh, the only reason this cat ever came to us is because that cat, the mean one, attacked him, took a big gash out of his side. And this cat just knew that we fed him. So it ran to us. How is his behavior now? I mean, has his behavior, has he chilled out or is he still the same? It's, it's amazing. The cats that he used to be trying to kill, uh, you know, the other two males in the area, they sit at the bowls together. You know, they won't eat at the same time. One of them will eat, the other one will watch, and then they'll kind of like walk around each other. But there's no, it used to be every single night in the middle of the night, it's just them fighting and attacking each other, mainly him attacking them. But now he's, he's cool as a cucumber. I haven't seen him. You know, he still chases the ladies a little bit, but you know, it's apparently just for fun. Uh, <laughs> there's no long-term outlook there. But yeah, it's, it's completely changed. And then the neighbors have like brought it up. They're like, we can sleep at night now. There's no more cat fights in the middle of the night. And the same is true of us. I mean, they, they live right outside our bedroom window, essentially, and they're very loud and it, it's much easier to sleep now. You mentioned that you did the certification workshop at uh, probably after the fact, but, you know, what time in the process did you do that? And would you recommend somebody do that before you went on this long journey? To your second question, yes. Do it before. And I, I've told everyone this. I'm like, if you're interested in doing this, get trained first, or you're going to end up like me getting tetanus shots in, in, in the middle of lockdown and, you know, getting COVID tested just for walking in. Uh, but we did it through, uh, I think it was Neighborhood Cats. 
and it was it was great. Like it taught us everything that we needed to know. Uh, and we did that between catching the mom and then catching all the rats. So with her, it was kind of like that uh, like wagon train where we had to like bring her to the Bronx. And so that was kind of informal uh, and we borrowed the trap. Uh, but for all the other ones, we went to the ASPCA, rented the traps you know, with the, you know, the deposit and whatnot, did it all through them above board uh, with the certification. And I, I will tell you like that the reason that there's a certification, there are best practices in this. Uh, we, we learned that very quickly. Uh, again, my, my Still have like flight scars on my hand from that very first day with uh, with Clara in here. So uh, yes, if you're doing this, definitely do it uh, the right way. Get trained. It, it was what a few hours. It's ten dollars and it's uh, two and a half hours and it's the first Saturday of every month except for January and July. It's, we uh, produce it with the Community Cats podcast and Neighborhood Cats. We produce these together. And in January, we usually have it uh, January eighth. And then it's the first Saturday of every month. And we also have it then the second Saturday in July. But yeah, pretty much every month we have a certification workshop and we have certified like over 2000 people through that program. So, but we would love it to be 20,000 people or more. <laughs> and you talked earlier about your sort of aha moment eight years ago. And I think we all have these aha moments where, I mean, I had a dumpster full of kittens with all mm -hmm. runny goopy eyes closed you know about 20 or 30 of them and i'm like no 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 we're not seeing this again i'm not and other people shouldn't have to see this and that was sort of my inspiration and it sounds like subtly in the back of your mind you had that as sort of your inspiration like we're not we're not going to see this we're not seeing that at that again and the fact that you were able to go through and understand the importance of obviously getting the whole colony spayed and neutered was extremely important. However, you were doing this during the lockdown time where you had time to invest. Think about doing it when you were working a full-time job or, you know, working multiple jobs, dealing with little kids, all this kind of stuff. You, you said there's frustrations. You are running for, you know, a political office. And if you had a magic wand and could try to like eliminate that red tape that you've referred to, what would it look like in terms of support programs for community cats if you did have this politically magical wand? Well, so I'm a libertarian, so and I know that will make a lot of people roll their eyes immediately, which is fine. So I'm not usually one for like big government programs. But when the government and the population at large is the cause of the problem, you know, like humans cause this problem. We brought these cats here. We let them out, not me. But we like th this is a you know, a tragedy of the commons. The government should be supporting anyone who is doing this work. I, I don't know how practical it is, but I, I think the idea of a voucher to go to a local vet would be a huge deal. It would be, and I know some vets just don't want to do it. They don't want to deal with them. But the distance that we had to drive was was ridiculous to get this done. You know, we're in Astoria, Queens. We had to get to Glendale twice. We rented a car in order to do that because no one could lend us a car. Two other times, people lent us cars. Um, but like we had to rent a car in order to drive these cats there, get there at six in the morning. Meanwhile, the vet for our cat, we can walk down the street and do it. You know, we, we, and they're, they're not willing to take the risk of, of having that cat in. But I think if the government gave some kind of, you know, uh, you know guarantee that, you know, if something happens when the cat's there, you're not going to be held liable, uh, you know, like a, a, a limit on liability to the vet, things like that. And then just doing a voucher system uh, instead of just through the ASPCA, because I know they're totally overwhelmed. As someone who's juggling it all, trying to keep people and pets together, you need easy access to resources to help you do just that. 
That's where Maddie's Pet Forum comes in. From adoption SOPs to TNR guidelines, you'll find it all. Have you joined yet? It's free. Visit forum.maddiesfund.org slash cats today. Could your animal welfare organization use a tune-up? Humane Network can help. You can get a free 30-minute consultation to talk through your challenges and get ideas on how your organization can be more successful with less stress. From board development and fundraising to strategic planning and operations, Humane Network has got you covered. Whether you are a large or small, nonprofit or government, it's a live and thriving program led by a certified animal behavior consultant features specially designed training for shelter and clinic staff on enrichment, stress reduction, safe animal handling, and behavior modification. With Humane Network, you receive individualized advice and support customized to meet your organization's unique needs. And Humane Network can lighten your load by taking on fundraising, communications, and other tasks you struggle with. Contact Humane Network today for a free 30-minute consultation. Visit humanenetwork.org. That's humanenetwork.org. If you're running a rescue, you're probably overloaded with tons of tasks pulling you in even more directions dog and cat intakes, volunteers to communicate with, fosters to find and pass info to, and don't forget about managing the all-important donations. It's easy to become overwhelmed, miss critical information, and worst of all, lose volunteers. Buzz to the Rescues offers an integrative platform that can help you gain back your time, streamline your workload, and clearly communicate with everyone on your team. Learn more at www.rescueyourrescue.com and gain back your peace of mind today. My understanding is that there's only usually, uh, at least lately, only one vet at each of these spay and neuter clinics at most of the time, and you know, they'll have assistants there, but there's just one person going down the road doing you know, 50 to 100 or more fixings in one day, and they all have to be at the same time, and it, it is just not the best system. Like, I'm so glad the system is there, because uh, there's, no there's no other system. So I'm, I'm glad it's there. Uh, but I, I think the idea of, of the government offering vouchers for local vets to do it, because it is a community good. You know, if by not, I, I, like we talked to our super and we're like, hey, we're going to be doing this, uh, this cat trapping thing. He's like, oh, thank God, I don't have to pick up frozen kittens anymore. Well, if you put it that way, yeah, yeah I, I, I guess that is, uh, <laughs> that is a big deal. But the other thing is, you know, I'm running for Congress, so it would be a national level thing. I think there needs to be national legalization of, of TNR. Overall, I was listening to one of your more recent interviews uh, with the, uh, I think, with a veterinarian from Australia, and about how cats are just—you're you're not allowed to touch them. Like they're—they're they're considered like a biohazard level five or something. Like you—you you cannot feed the cats, you cannot fix the cats, you cannot do anything with the cats. And they had to uh, apply for special permissions and grants and go through everything. And I would—you know—I know it's not that bad here, but anything we can do at the national level to make it clear that this is a policy that works. And it is a policy that works to address a problem that we have caused, that humans have caused, and do it in a humane way. Because the other thing that was brought up in that interview is just the toll it takes on people who have to put these cats down. Because when they go to a government shelter, you know, when they go to a city-run shelter, that's almost certainly the outcome, uh, especially the adults. You know, the, none of those cats out there are, you know, are going to be tamed. Uh, we really wanted to try to tame the mom because she's so cute. She looks just like Clara. But we, you know, we realized when she was here, she's like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. She's, she's too old. She's very happy out there. We'll put her back. And we cried a little bit. We were sad to see her go. And now when we look out the window, sometimes we'll worry Clara has jumped out the window because it looks so similar. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think removing that. Uh, the, the, but the biggest red tape was just the shutdown of everything. Like, if you're working in a veterinary office, if you're doing surgeries, 
you're masked up, like you're you're taking precautions not to spread infection or or to get infection yourself. Uh, so I, I it didn't make sense to me that we had to have the ASPCA shut down by law for what was it eight months, maybe more than that. I mean, if they're doing several hundred of these a week or several hundred a month, I mean, how many cats did not get fixed during that time? It's a lot. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there was that question early on in the lockdown, and I did several pop-up panels talking about this back when the lockdown first happened was, you know, determining essential services and what were the risks and, and the, the unknown issues. And many states deemed spay-neuter of animals and veterinary care as an essential service, and then some areas interpreted it as as not, and, and Oregon as a state, their facilities were shut down for a long period of time. And then there were other areas where business as usual, practically, you know, I mean, people were being safe and trying to have protocols to keep their staff safe. But, you know, there were some staff members that felt uncomfortable. There's a nationwide veterinary shortage out there. So there's a lot of challenges. Um, many veterinarians left the field if they were nearing retirement age or if they had to go home to deal with kids, as, as we did across, you know, the whole country has shortages with regards to that. Um, and we're slowly working our, our way back, you know, back together. But there's a lot of private practice veterinarians are not taking new clients. Emergency clinics are still operating on diversion at times because mm -hmm. the volume is so high. And a lot of those emergency clinics are having to take cases that might not be deemed emergency because the private practice clinics can't handle it. And then that ripple effect goes up and down. So low cost bay neuter clinics get a lot more folks that can't get the service at the private clinics just because there might be more accessibility. So everybody's trying to find wherever they can get a slot, you know, so there's just a lot more demand and the, the slot numbers are, are way down. So, you know, I drives me crazy if anybody doesn't show up for a veterinary slot because, you know, we don't want one of those opportunities to, to be left behind. So, you know, but you, you are talking about on a national level, there are some municipal organizations around the country that do have progressive community cap programs and offer TNR, which would be great, you know, from a national level, maybe identifying those, those programs and be able to model them, you know, around the country and to continue to grow them with extra funding. That would be fantastic. Um, as well as access to spay neuter for those owned cats, because it does start with Adam and Eve. And, you know, making sure that everybody does have appropriate access to, to care for their cats, especially from the spay neuter side of things. But, you know, in general, you're talking about an eight-year-old cat being out there on the streets. When I was working the colony in Newburyport with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, we had cats 15, 16, 17 years old. So if they have the right level of care, you know, you've made a big commitment to those cats. But I think it's great that you've been inspired to sort of enter into politics. And this was maybe one of those topics that really encouraged you to, to get motivated for that. It, it did that in several ways. One is that it just, it made me feel like part of the community. Like I've lived all over New York City at this point. I've lived in Brooklyn. I've lived in Washington Heights and Manhattan. I've lived I lived all over. My wife has lived in Forest Hills and here, you know, and we're both born and raised in Western Massachusetts, you know, quite, quite different places. And we came here and, you know, we, we meet some people and, you know, we, we know our neighbors a little bit. But by the end of this process, like we walk out and we know everyone by name and everyone knows us by name. And it could not have come at a better time because it was the time when we were cut off from everybody. You know, everyone was cut off from everybody. No, no one knew anybody and, and everyone was scared. Everyone was sad. Everyone wanted something to do that was positive 
And they did, and they stepped right up. And for me, A, it made me feel like part of the community, and B, it made me say, like, look, libertarianism, like, it's not just about saying, oh, the government shouldn't do it, X, Y, and Z. It's about saying, we should do X, Y, and Z. Like, we need to step up, and we need to leave a libertarian legacy and go out and make the world better. If we're going to say the government's not best at it, who is? You know, obviously the government's not best at this point, uh, at least, at doing population control of feral cats. But the TNR people are great at it. We, we have a system that works. And if the government's not using it, they're allowing it. I appreciate that. That's good. Very magnanimous of them. But they're not doing it. And so we have to do it. And to see that everyone was absolutely, everyone had that in their head. Like, the government doesn't do it. We have to do it. And they did it. And, and people do it all the time. And if, if the, you know, the, the, the clerk from uh, Bronx County Court who had told me, you know, call me and I'll get you on the wagon train up to, uh, to Westchester, she's done thousands of them. You know, she's done thousands of, of TNR just in one area of, uh, you know, one portion of the Bronx um, over many years at, at this point. But you know, she has a full-time job. She has kids. She, she manages the house. Um, you know, she, she works very hard being a clerk in Bronx County Court. We have a lot of cases. And just, just seeing the way that people make this their priority, make doing something good for their, for their community a priority was really, really inspiring. So I, I know this isn't going to be airing until uh, March, uh, but part of my like give back to the cat community, uh, you know, shtick on my campaign is that uh, for every hundred dollars I'm raising in uh, in December, we're going to be putting out one of uh, one of these cat houses that you see behind me. So there's a, a local group, uh, well not local, out in Long Island. They make these really great cat winter shelters. They use the uh, the fishing boxes and they wrap them in all the stuff and they have drainage holes and they're filled with straw, not hay. They're filled with straw, not hay. And, you know, we, we went and picked them up. They sell them essentially for cost. And now our tiny one-bedroom apartment is filled with them. Uh, we cannot use our kitchen table. It is stacked with, uh, with houses. So I'm being a little optimistic about my fundraising uh, this month as a third-party no-name candidate. Um, but, you know, we're going to do it. You know, for every for every hundred bucks, and I'm, I'm hoping we can raise at least a thousand because we've got ten of them. Uh, for every hundred bucks, we're going to be putting one of these out. And one of the great parts about the 14th Congressional District where I'm running, at least for now, if they don't redistrict it, uh, is that it covers huge areas of like fairly residential parts of Queens and huge areas of fairly residential parts of the Bronx as well, like the South Bronx over to the East Bronx. And there's already committed TNR people at all those places. The only thing they're lacking is resources and supplies. So if I can give a little bit to them, like here's here's a shelter for you know four or five of your cats. I'm, I'm obviously going to be doing TNR the rest of my life at this point because it's an obsession. But just to help those local you know groups out and you know bring them a little bit of uh, of help is is one small way I'm giving back, even if I don't win, which I guess is a possibility. But just to go back when you were talking about uh, legislation, if I win, another thing that is good, I've I've been googling for a while for any big name candidate or big name politician who has ever stood up and said this is an important issue, and I can't find it. Uh, maybe, maybe it's just. You know, there's so many articles on TNR that I can't find it. I, I happen to be running against a fairly famous person, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So if I were to win, or if I were to even get on the ballot, which is going to take a lot of signatures to do, you know, I'm going to make a few headlines. And if I can get on a, you know, on, you know, God forbid, Fox News or something, and, and say, hey, also remember, TNR is good. Go to this website, get TNR certified, or something like that, and just remind people, like, this is a way that you can help your community. This is a way that you can help cats. Even the platform alone, uh, I think, would be really, really great. And it would be, again, another way to give back to this community, which, uh, you know, I don't want to say it restored my faith in humanity, but it pretty much did. At that time, uh, we all needed that boost, and this is what gave it to me. And I think a lot of people uh, could be inspired to do 
greater things if uh, if they got into this than I was. Jonathan, if folks are interested in finding out more about your race and your platform and other topics away from cats, how would they do that? Well, they could go to my website. It's at how2022.com. So that's H-O-W-E and then the numbers 2022.com. Uh, it's my campaign website. So do expect you know some uh, some uh, policy positions. My, my tagline is uh, peace, justice, and a clean planet through individual liberty. I consider myself an environmentalist libertarian, which again, a lot of people are about to roll their eyes. But that's okay. Uh, I think if you read through my platform, uh, you'll, you'll see what I mean by that. But yeah, it'd be how2022.com. All my links to social media are there. Uh, and you'll get to see lots of pictures with me and my cats. Uh, a, a friend of mine who's a, a bird photographer uh, came and did some headshots for me. And I was like, we got to get the cats in some of these. Uh, so in front of this little uh, book stand back here, I, uh, I took a picture holding my cats up like I'm the Statue of Liberty. And one of them is the torch. And the other one is the, uh, you know, the, the book. Uh, and I wanted to use that as my main picture. But my campaign manager was like, We'll put it at the bottom of the website. <laughs> no, we'll put it at the bottom. So now it's at the bottom, uh, but it's there. <laughs> so you can see the pictures of uh, of me holding the cats. You can see lots of uh, videos of me releasing the cats, uh, you know, catching the cats, all that type of stuff. I, I initially joked, like with my campaign group, I was like, you know, we've we got to get the cat lady vote. Uh, you know, it's such a dedicated group of people who are out there doing it. Um, and they're like, maybe we shouldn't word it that way. But I'm still going to reach out to the Community Cats podcast. And here I am. And here you are. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close out? Nothing, especially. I just want to thank you. I want to thank uh, you know, the whole TNR community. Uh, were you the one who did my training or am I imagining that? Were no, you I, did, I did the training. Okay. I hosted. Okay. I yep. make, okay. I want to make sure. Uh, so if you're, if you are interested in TNR, uh, which you should be, if you're listening to this, it'd be weird if you're not get certified. Don't wing it. Like I have a great story now about winging it, you know, with the cat fishing and, you know, trying to catch the cats. But you will do better. The, the, the community will be better off. Everyone will be better off if you just get certified first and you won't have to get a tetanus shot. And you definitely won't have to get a rabies shot. So get certified. Excellent. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on in the future after you win. <laughs> thank you very much. I look forward to it. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.